Welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome back to Throwback Paperback. I'm one of the hosts, Asia Bonilla. And I'm Charles Sheeland, the other host. And today we're doing a special episode as we cover the first half of the Hunger Games prequel novel, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. And as we like to tell you, every week we're a book club podcast with the Nerd Party Network and we're reading and rereading young adult books and sharing them with each other. And this episode covers the extra new book of our fifth book series of the show. This prequel came out last summer, and as all prequels do, it takes place before our original trilogy storyline, but it really serves to kind of flesh out the world that we experienced with Katniss and Peeta. And we normally like to alternate between series that one of us has read and the other hasn't, so you get to hear our differing perspectives. But as we said, for The Hunger Games, we'd both read the original trilogy. But the actual prequel that we're covering today goes back to our original format because I've never read it. Asia read it last summer when it came out, and because we were already preparing and producing the podcast when it came out, I waited to read it so that knowing that we would read The Hunger Games on the show. So here you go. One of us is reading it for the first time. And once again, I have to apologize because once again, I am out of town. So if the audio is wonky, it is my fault. I think Asia and I have a week coming up where we might have another one more wonky audio, but I think that from then on, we should be good for a while, but we'll see. Anyway, again, if there's something wrong with the audio, blame me, not Asia. Yes, but back to The Hunger Games. As we said, we both really love this series, (laughs) and with Charles being the new reader, especially for this book, he is on summary duty, so he's going to just go ahead and recap the first half of the book. Yeah, notice how Asia just moved on from my terrible audio troubles. Okay, anyway... So this novel follows Coriolanus Snow as an 18-year-old and mentor in the 10th Hunger Games. The Snow family is quite reputable, but they're quite poor after the war, so Coriolanus is trying to maintain his status and keep his poverty a secret. Poverty also being loose terms, because he's still living in the capital. But the games are quite different than they are in Katniss's time, and the game makers are trying to revamp them this year to boost interest and effectiveness of the games. Coriolanus and his classmates are mentoring the tributes, and he gets the girl from District 12, who turns out to be quite the talented performer. Coriolanus plays up her talents to make her into a bit of a celebrity, and honestly more of a celebrity than any tribute has been yet. Basically, there's a lot more to cover, so I'm not going to get too bogged down, but we have Coriolanus's journey of trying to impress the right people, fool everyone, and maybe falling in love with his tribute, Lucy Gray, unclear. Anyway, we're experiencing him experiencing almost every emotion, honestly, so I'll stop there and have us just dive into the reading before we get bogged down in every single chapter. But my impression quickly of the reading is that And I'm sure we will talk more about this later on in the episode. But the Hunger Games were really badly thought out. And this is something that we were also talking about on the show generally. Like how the Hunger Games wasn't a great structure of government. Because it, one, like elevated super smart and talented people. So like natural leaders for a rebellion. But also like if tributes from other districts met each other, then you 
built interdistrict bonds. So like we said that even in Katniss's time, the Hunger Games didn't actually like make very much sense. But like this novel really fleshes that out. Like they weren't even really intended to happen. They were a school project. And so I don't know, the games made even less sense early on, but those are my thoughts and I'm sure we'll talk about that more. Asia, what about you? Yeah, I definitely agree that this book really highlights how just ineffective the Hunger Games are, especially since the capital seems to think they're really effective. And as we saw in the trilogy that we just finished, that, you know, it obviously eventually did cause a rebellion and the capital losing power. But, like, we get in the Hunger Games trilogy how Snow tells Katniss about how fragile a system it is. And in this book, we really get to see the beginnings of it and how the Hunger Games ultimately just was never really a sustainable solution, which we'll definitely get into more. But, yeah, I think this book really highlights it. And even how you've said, like, we are going to find out that this kind of wasn't, like, this super well thought out plan. It was just kind of this idea that just got thrown into the making and it slowly developed into what it became with what Katniss and Peeta participated in. Totally. So diving into the plot, we found out that Tigress, who's that mutilated, mutilated stylist from the Capitol that we met in Mockingjay, she's actually Coriolanus's cousin. And the Snow family, which was once quite powerful and prominent, is quite poor after the war, but they're trying to hide it. And Coriolanus is in direct contrast with Sejanus Plinth, a boy from District 2 whose family became so fabulously wealthy during the war that they bought their way basically into capital citizenship. So Sejanus and Corio are classmates, and they're going to be mentors this year. For the first time, they're going to be mentors for the tributes in the 10th. Hunger Games. And for the 10th Hunger Games, they're trying to get more people to watch. So this is the first time that they're having seniors from the Academy are going to be mentoring the tributes and the tributes will be kind of made up more for the cameras and they'll be interviewed. And basically we learn that no one has watched the first nine Hunger Games and they're just trying to find a way to get people to become more involved and also just improve the potency of the games. And we also know that 1 and 2 and 4 and 11 have already kind of been noticed as districts that make strong tributes simply because of their wealth or their industry. But Coriolanus gets what he thinks is the worst tribute, which is the girl from District 12, Lucy Gray, which during her reaping, she puts a snake down another girl's dress, which it's the daughter of the mayor that she puts the snake down. And as we all know here on this podcast that Charles is deathly afraid of snakes, which obviously snakes is literally in the title of the book. So I'm sure hopefully he's prepared himself, but I just, I want to know all the scary moments for Charles. So were you scared in that moment? I was terrified. I was, I've refrained from saying something when I read the title of the prologue. But when she put the snake down that girl's dress and then she brought it up with the child later, I was like, Ooh. oh, my God, I think it's so scary. I like I think if someone like put a snake within like an inch of my body, honestly, within like feet, if I could see it. But like if it was like in contact with my body, I would die of fear immediately. Like the snake wouldn't even get to kill me. Like I would be dead of fear. Like having a snake go down my shirt, I would die. I would, I would be instantly dead. Like yeah, I would that's go into cardiac scary. arrest. <laughs> 
Anyway, and then there were snakes later with Dr. Gall. Oh, my God, that was Lots of snakes. Lots Yeah, we're not snakes. talking about that. <laughs> we're going to skip over that part real fast. But so in the reaping, we also find out that the reaping takes place on July 4th. So that's not an accident that this is yeah. in North America. And they set the reaping on American Independence Day or U.S. Independence Day, as I should say. But we also, um, you know, we're getting some backstory on Coriolanus. And he does think that District 13 was bombed. Like, he says that. And as we found out in Mockingjay, District 13 was superficially bombed, but they were kind of allowed to exist. So I'm one. And I don't know if we'll get this in the book, because I don't think that we're going to get Coriolanus becoming president when he's 18. But I do expect that the secret of 13 is clearly very well hidden if he doesn't know about it. And two, more importantly, I think that when Coriolanus does find out, like I said, this could be after this book, so we might not get it written down. But when he finds out that his family's fortune, because he his family was invested in 13, was given to the rebels, like the rebels that got to survive, that's going to make him hate the districts even more. The fact that like his family, he grew up poor because of his money being like squandered in 13, but then finding out that 13 got to live, like that will make him hate the districts even more. So that's something. And like I said, I don't know if we're going to get that in the book. It would be cool if we do, but if not, either way we get that, like, because we have Mockingjay, like that's between those two books, we've fleshed out the character even further. And so Coriolanus gets Lucy Gray Baird, and she's constantly stealing the show. She's wearing this cute little dress. She sings all the time. And he goes to meet her at the train. But it turns out they've put the tributes into a livestock car. And then they get dumped into the monkey house at the zoo. So it's pretty savage. Yes, yeah, so and we're definitely going to have an ongoing theme of them just treating the tributes like literal animals. And we also learned that, you know, in the previous games, they would literally just throw the tributes right into it. They would get picked up at the reaping, go straight to the Capitol, be thrown right into the arena to start. And that's why they're kind of trying to revamp it to make it into a more of a bigger production. Again, like what, it, like when they said that, I was like, well, clearly you didn't think this through because like there's no entertainment value if it's just 24 random children you know, that then kill each other. Like, like we said, people didn't watch it because again, who wants to watch children kill each other? It becomes mandatory later on, but go ahead. I was just going to say that I think that that's going to be a theme we're going to find throughout the book that lots of the characters, even some of the, um, some of Corio's classmates talk about it. If they do of like why nobody wants to watch the Hunger Games, nobody wants to see a bunch of kids kill each other. Like it, it kind of like shows the, almost like the loss of the capital's humanity and their idea of, because at first the reason why no one wants to watch it is because it is, it's awful to watch. Why are we watching children kill each other? But as they try to make it into something that's more entertaining, people are going to start to buy into it more and you kind of lose the idea of these are still human beings that you're forcing to take each other's lives. Totally. Like it's definitely going to be an, it's definitely like a very like sick, I have a lot to say, especially once we get more into what, like, Dr. Gall has said to Coriolanus, too. Like, just the thought process behind it really is just awful. Yeah. Even, like, it's not just Sejanus. It's also the other kids. They really, like, you're right. They're very much, like, it's kind of sickening to watch this. 
And it's, and then even the ones who are like a little twisted already, they're like, it's kind of boring. Cause it's not like these are like trained fighters. Like they're all hungry. They're all deprived. Starving children Starving who are children. already dying of hunger. hunger. Like, and then like some fight. of them might like be able to hold a sword, but like, it's not. Yeah. So totally like we get like a lot of the capital children who are like, I don't really want to like to watch it. So anyway, yes, you're totally right. And I think we will talk about it more. And so, like, we even have chapters in which the mentors are discussing how to make the games more enjoyable, or at least more entertaining. And Coriolanus, he's the one who suggests the betting, and he also suggests the food sponsorship. Like, in the other games, in the previous games, people would just die of hunger, which obviously, like, we know that happens in Katniss's time, and they're called the Hunger Games, and like I said, there are people who died in Katniss's games of Katniss almost died of dehydration, but at least she was in an arena where there was like a chance that she could get food naturally. Like in the previous games, people would just show up and then like, it probably like most of them probably just died of hunger, like by hiding out anyway, because there's no food in the arena. And then like, like people would have, like there would have been a Or literally of- from just dehydration. Cause yeah, they don't really... Talk like, they would that? have had like, a week tops to live. Like, the games could have only ta- taken a week because everyone would die in the have, meantime. They would have had only had a few days with For no dehydration. Water. And that's and what I'm so, saying. That's something that they, they said it was held in the old amphitheater that used to have, like, sports games and stuff. So, like, there's probably not a, nat- there's not a natural source of water there. So, it's no. kind of like, that means that the games would have only lasted a few days. Also, it's way smaller. Like, there's nowhere for people to hide. And, yeah. like, I said, like, I can only imagine that in the earlier games... District 1 and 2 would have won just because they literally had more calories left in their system because they're from wealthier districts. Like, (laughs) they didn't even have to fight. They just had to, like, outlive everyone else. Yeah, and so in one of those class meetings where they're trying to discuss things and making it better, we also find out that Dean Casca Highbottom actually is the one who came up with the idea of the Hunger Games when he was, I believe, um, in university. Like, they said he was just a couple years older than the students – the mentors are now and just something about dean highbottom we so far have learned that he obviously doesn't really like coriolanus like he has, seems to have some kind of beef with him and we do find out that he was at least close with at some point um snow coriolanus snow's father and obviously they didn't had a falling out or something because like it's pretty pretty clear like Dean Highbottom does not like Coriolanus and he's also has like an addiction to morphling and is constantly like in a drugged state probably from feeling guilty for creating the Hunger Games honestly probably also I'm like expecting the fallout or the falling out between Tigris and Coriolanus which I expect we will be getting in this book like or at least I expect so. I mean, she becomes a stylist later on, so maybe not. But, like, it wouldn't surprise me if Snows are easily willing to discard other people, you know, for their own sake. But, yeah, so you're, like you said, it was a university, like, project. He says it was, like, it was a theory. And that's, again, why we said it's, like, not that thought out because it wasn't an effective tool because who's going to watch it unless they have to? And... 
you know, no one's watching it. They're in that old arena, like you said. And there's no difference each year. Like, at least with Katniss as a year, like, when Katniss starts watching the games, there's a different arena each year. So different tributes, like, their different skill sets will play in. Like, what's the cornucopia is different every year. Whether there's a feast or not is different every year. And because you get to know the tributes, it's different every year. Because, you know, you might be rooting for someone or you might be not rooting for one person. But, like, in the previous years, again completely random they just were like here's the weapons and who can stay alive the longest and i'm like if you're dying of hunger you're probably not going to be strong enough to pick up a sword and stab someone like you're just like i want to curl up in a ball (laughs) and then the victor doesn't even get anything like i know they obviously have the houses they have the victor's village but like it kind of sounds like the victor just goes away they just go back to their home district like i don't think that they had the victor's village at that point so even then like and it definitely your, doesn't sound your like winning you're is that you survived. Your winning is that you, you survive. It's like they are sparing one life. I mean, when you think about the Hunger Games in and of itself, like again, it's only it literally would only breed hatred. Like the districts now will hate the capital for what they make them do. Like you know what I mean? It's not gonna make them feel weak. It's gonna make them feel angry. And I think that's the biggest thing with like the biggest issue is. They also, when the districts are so much larger than the capital, like there's way more people in the districts. Like it's just, it was never going to work out. It's just whether the district people eventually can gain the strength and the courage to like stand up to like their oppressors, basically. Totally. I mean, like, especially like these early games, I'm like, at least later on, like the whole point is like the victor gets so much money they never have to work again so they can be a celebrity which would give them like hope or whatever because like how in district 1 and 2 it was a great honor to win the games like that would help some of their numbers because now not everybody just hates the games like you have them there's hate between districts and stuff so like as it went on it got a little better but it still like doesn't take away that underlying like collective hatred for the capital totally it makes no sense like we said it was clearly not that well planned out. And another thing I wanted to mention, so like I said, the victors doesn't get anything when they go home, but they also just like, and clearly, like you said so well, like they're sparing one life, but the tributes are like beyond, even more disposable than they are in Katniss's time. So Arachne is one of the mentors. Again, terrible name. These capital people were naming their children ridiculous things. Like, we're going to name her after the first spider. Okay. Arachne's tribute kills her, and then Arachne gets killed, and there's not even a discussion of replacing the tribute before the game. And then a couple more of the tributes die in the rebel bombing, and then a couple of them die of starvation, I think, before they get into the arena. And it's like they go into the arena with already a third of the tributes dead. Like, that's so pitiful. Like, it's one of the things that PETA says to calm Katniss down in the first games is that, like, they are not going to kill Katniss before the games start after she shoots at the game makers because they can't not have one of the tributes because they need the full effect of 24 of them killing each other. Yeah. And in this one, they're like, they're all going to die anyway really quickly. Like, it's only a matter of time. So they're fine with eight of them being dead before they even start the games. Which, how you're saying about the, there's no value for the tribute, something we're also going to get through there, through this is just, there's no value at all for, like, human life with, um, which we can mention, Dr. Gall, who is the head game maker for this Hunger Games. And she is 
literally insane. Like, literally insane. Well, she keeps rhyming, too. She's like, hippity hoppity, hippity hoppity. <laughs> yeah, but, like, so she's crazy, and she has this tank full of snake mutts, which, again, oh, no, more snakes or Charles. But I just want to set the scene that basically they had asked three of the students, which was Coriolanus, Clement, Clementia, Clement, Clementia, Clementia, and I think Arachne, Arachne. to come up with, what was the assignment again? A proposal on how to incorporate the food sponsorship. Oh, yeah. So basically to draft that up, like with what the class had discussed. And obviously the night they were supposed to do that is the night Arachne gets killed by the tribute. So they're like, oh, Clementia tells Corio, she's like, we probably don't have to do it. Like, obviously we're all mourning our classmate. And when Coriolanus gets home, he just decides to draft it up anyway. He goes and turns it in at the Citadel to doc- to give to Dr. Gall. And he just says, like, they all wrote it up together. And so she calls, Dr. Gall calls Corio and Clemencia to her lab to talk about their proposal. And she's lined the proposal in the tank, like, underneath this, like, web, like, probably like a hundred like little tiny color neon colored snakes and she wants them to reach in and grab it and so Coriolanus is able to grab it and he's fine but when Clementia goes in she gets bitten by the snakes and basically Dr. Gall explains that like these snake mutts are if they know your scent they'll recognize you and you're not a threat but if they've never smelled your scent before you're a threat so they're going to obviously attack you and since Coriolanus is the only person who worked on the paper only his scent was on the paper and so Dr. Gall back to her being insane to prove that this student was lying she willingly let the student get bitten by tons of snakes not one like multiple snake bites and then they give her the antidote and she passes out and they like rush her to the hospital like again This is another theme of the book. There's just, like, no, like, everyone's expendable. And, like, Coriolanus, like, I realize this. He's like, I'm expendable. Even us as capital children, like, we're meaningless to capital people, which, again, just awful. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, the snakes, it was a pretty horrible scene for me to read because I was like, tank full of snakes. I was like, someone's getting bitten. I was like, check off snake. Someone's <laughs> getting bitten. Yeah. I mean, it takes me back to like, as you guys know on the podcast, and I think I've done a good job of me- not mentioning Harry Potter for a long time. But in the first Harry Potter book, when they go on the, I think it's, it's not the worst birthday, but it's, oh, it's called, the, the chapter's called The Reptile House. But they go and Harry makes the the glass of the tank of the boa constrictor vanish by accident and Dudley falls in. I am I have to look away during that scene in the movie. Okay. That in no way compares to Nicholas Lamau with um Paranel just walking through millions of spider carcasses. I don't think anything will ever compare to the level of disgusting. That is off the charts. Off the charts for level of nasty. <laughs> I don't know. I think the neon snake bites. Oh, God. And then when Clemencia starts No, to- I think 
I think that scene alone is why they can't have a live action because they're like, we can't do that. Like, people will throw up. <laughs> but they people are leave. producing a live people action. People burn the screens. They are producing a live they ha- action. They're going to have to cut that. There's no way that's going to Also, be Michael there. Scott, if and you're if still is, listening, I do want to be an associate producer on this if this happens. Michael Scott, if you're still listening, thank you very much. I'm boycotting. I'll be protesting outside the <laughs> I'll be working in the offices and you'll be protesting me. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so. I just know scenes like that. Clemencia starts transforming into a snake. So that's even grosser. So let's go back to little Corio. So like I said, he's poor, but he's trying to cover it up. And he's trying to get a scholarship to college. Like, I was like, wow, that ain't America. He's just trying to, like, afford his college education so he can advance. But then, you know, it's because he wants to be a president of a dictatorship. So maybe not. But so (laughs) (laughs) he's trying to, like, hype up Lucy Gray. And because... He, you know, he needs his tribute to do well so that he can win a prize. And he's, like, playing up the, her likable personality. And so for the interview, he's like, she's going to sing. Everyone's going to love that. But then, you know, they get bombed in the arena. And he is like, oh, my God, her voice will be messed up. So he goes and asks the doctor, you know, is Lucy Gray okay? Are you guys taking care of her? And the doctor's like, they sent a really good vet down to tribute that to heal the tributes. I was like, a vet? They're humans. Again, the theme of treating them like animals. Yeah, it was but it was quite explicit there. But speaking of the bombing really quick, I do want to mention, which we haven't talked about yet, is we do have to remember that during the bombing, a like a pole or something falls on Coriolanus and Lucy Gray saves his life. She lifts off the pole off of him and like there's a moment where like she's looking at something else and it's because some of the other tributes tried to escape and she because like there was a bomb so like it blew a hole in the side of their arena but instead of you know maybe trying to escape for freedom she decides to save his life and that's something he talks about like wanting like owing her and like which is why he kind of has a transition into instead of you know just using her for getting his prize for college. He also wants like to help her survive the Hunger Games to kind of repay her for that. But since I know we're kind of like jumping around a lot and it's a lot of the same stuff because, you know, it's Coriolanus at school, then he's at the monkey house visiting Lucy Gray, then he's talking to Dr. Gall and Dean Highbottom. So I, we might be a tad out of order and I'm sorry for that, but there is a conversation we should also mention that when, like we said, Dean Highbottom is kind of just always, like, drugged up on the morphling, like, not fully there. Again, just totally filled with guilt, probably. But there's a moment that he kind of, like, sobers up for a second after the bombing of the arena. And he says to Snow how history kind of always repeats itself when it comes to war and violence. Like, he makes a comment about that. And it's definitely true because it's like this idea of which they talk about I think in the class is like the idea of even though the war is over is it really over because they're essentially still punishing the districts for the war and they're going to continue punishing the districts for the next you know 75 years until there's another war essentially to try to like even it out and I think because he was kind of just commenting, you know, on the fact of, like, you know, when wars are won, it's always, like, things are going to be better, but then they're not. Like, they just never are. We we just are in, like, this vicious cycle. I'm actually really glad you brought up that conversation because 
in that conversation, Coriolanus calls it the endless war. And I think that one, yes, it's going into that theme that you just discussed so nicely, but it actually is also, I think it's a, it's a callback to Suzanne Collins' inspiration for the series. And I'm pretty sure you know this, but maybe not. But Suzanne Collins came up with the idea for the Hunger Games based on, she got the idea when she was watching, she was TV surfing in the late 2000, in the late aughts, I should say. And she was flipping between channels covering American reality television and footage of the Iraq war. And then she was also thinking about the Perseus story in mythology, which is again, why a lot of the characters have mythological names, but the idea of the hunger games of being like a reality television event of slaughter and this, and, and then, you know, I think that she wrote this in later now she wrote this like 2018, 2019, published in 2020. At that point, the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war had been labeled like our U.S.'s forever wars, our endless wars, because we had no plans to get out of them. And um, I think that, you know, like it almost re- like history literally proved that right then and there, because she got the inspiration for this, for the original series, like 2008, 2009, I believe. And... Because well, I think the first book came out in 2008. So maybe it was it was right before then. But like that war, like the Afghanistan war, we're still we're withdrawing troops right now. Still, like we're yeah. hopefully finishing within the next few weeks. But like Coriolanus literally calls it the endless war, and I was like, wow, she literally she was right. <laughs> I mean, you know, her theme was really well explored, and again, we're going to talk a little more about this at the end because there's another conversation coming up with Dr. Gall, but I don't want to jump ahead to that. So, but I just want to like mention that like she calls it the endless war. And I was like, that immediately made me think of the inspiration for the series. Cause mm-hmm. she said that in a lot of interviews that it was like the flipping between reality TV and the Iraq war that made her write the original Hunger Games in the first place. Yes. So then back to the book, we are in it's interview time. <laughs> Which I go off my tangents and Asia's just like and well, back to you the know, book. Back to our regularly scheduled program. <laughs> we enjoy the tangents though. But um so we have Lucy Gray, which she goes last and she performs a song that's basically talking about, you know, a past lover who wronged her and she like hints basically that whoever this guy was had a hand in kind of getting her picked in the reaping. And ironically, Coriolanus is jealous. Yeah. So at first he's jealous of her lover. He, so he also like, he talks about this. He's like, everyone assumes she's my property. Like Sejanus even, Sejanus who's supposed to be like the district's advocate. Like, he even was like, well, you can just trade her. Like, you can just trade her away. Like, everyone assumes that she's his... I mean, pro- they're like pets. They're like pets. Like, they're animals. They, they're literally like they're, pets. They, they're property. They are objects. Totally. But then, so he's jealous of her lover. But that's weird, because why would you be jealous of your pet's lover? But then, he also, later on, he's jealous of her stardom. He's like, she's becoming, like, more famous than him, and he's worried that she's going to, like, succeed in the games or succeed in everyone's hearts 
but like he's not gonna get credit for it. Like he's jealous that she's like doing so well. And so all I could think of was like, wow, another super possessive man who is jealous of another woman. It's like, we've got Gail and Jacob all over again. Yeah, but I would say he's a lot worse in the sense of also like that he's very obvious about his possessiveness in the sense of when he's jealous of the lover, like how he thinks about it. He's like, she belongs to me. Everyone knows her as part of me. Like she is not, she doesn't exist on her own. She exists as an extension of me. Like she's my tribute, my girl. Like I own her. Which is just... And she didn't have value until she belonged to me. Exactly. So it's like a whole new level, which obviously this dynamic is very different than any of the other the ones from The Hunger Games with Gail and Twilight with Jacob. But Snow is also falling for Lucy Gray. He is falling in love with her, and he not only to like... Oh, uh, to repay her for saving his life, but he also just doesn't want her to die because he's start, he's starting to care about her. And in their final goodbye before she goes into the arena, they kiss on the lips, and it's a very romantic kiss in front kiss. of everyone. In front of everyone, I I wrote down that I was like, I guess you know this another theme of or a character trait of Snow's is that he really cares about other people, how p- other people perceive him because, you know, he's trying to maintain his snow image and everything. But in this moment, he just throws all that all out the window as he kisses his District 12 tribute that are supposed to be, again, like animals less than human. And, I mean, I guess it's not made that big a deal of, but still. And they go, like, they try to go in for a second kiss and the peacekeepers have to separate them. So it's quite intense, but because, you know, he's falling for her and really just cares about her, he decides to give her his mom's old compact, which is like his most prized possession. He like smells the like rose scented powder whenever he's feeling anxious, but he takes out the powder and when he gives it to her, he says, you know, I was hoping you'd use your own powder. And I just wanted to know, Charles, in this moment, that if you had, like, an idea of, like, what he was hinting at. So, yes, I did write down. I was like, her own powder must mean poison. I have no idea where she's getting poison from. Did she milk the snake venom? Like, I hadn't, like, I was (laughs) like, I was like, anyone's guess is as good as mine. I assumed poison, but that's because we just read Mockingjay. And we just talked about how Finnick was like, Coriolanus Snow poisons people. It's his weapon of choice. And so I was like, it's probably poison. I don't know where she's getting it from. I mean, and then we get it in like a chapter two later. He's like, "Use." she's going to use the rat poison. And I'm like, I hope she figures it out. Maybe when, I guess they put rat poison in the tributes animal cage at the like they put it in the monkey cage the rat they were saying well that was something that was brought up at the beginning that there was rat poison throughout the zoo because there's lots of rats which like jessup which is the other district 12 the male tribute he gets bitten by a rat and like they make a comment about how the rat, rat poison's not doing anything for the rats and like because the rats are smart like they've been here forever but yeah so they do make a comment about the rat poison and then they obviously reveal it very quickly Yeah, I knew that there was rat poison, but I was like, did we get a specific comment saying the rat poison was in a powder? Like, maybe it was, but again, Coriolanus tells it, like, in the next chapter. They say it's, they said it's white powder. Okay, well then, I mean, like I said, I knew it was poison, and then it gets revealed, like, in the next chapter, so, 
but I didn't figure out. I mean, I just was wondering because I feel like the first time I read it, I was like, what is he talking well, about? Well, yeah, he was like, her powder. I was like, it's poison, but she doesn't, I don't, like, I, the rat poison, like, it wasn't out of left field because I did remember them mentioning it, but it wasn't like I was like, oh, Lucy Gray, I must associate that with white rat poison powder, but okay, thank you. <laughs> but I wanted to mention, so at the end of the interview, when they walk off, they hold hands, Coriolanus and Lucy Gray. And then he gives her the compact and he's like, it might be against the rules to give her something, but uh, it's okay. No one will care in the long run. And, but I'm like, honestly, like using the compact to store a weapon would probably be considered rebellious. And like the fact that they were holding hands, like again, remember if you remember in the first Hunger Games when Katniss and Peta hold hands and it already is like, the idea of humanizing them, that they are, like, two... This, I mean, again, it feeds into the star-crossed lovers, but it also feeds into, like, them being, like, people who have feelings rather than, I'm just here to kill everyone else, which is how everyone else treats it. They... I'm like, Coriolanus is showing these things. Like, he's got a personal relationship with his tribute, which is elevating her from animal status to human. And he's giving her this weapon, this compact that like might be slight against the rules that she's going to have a strategy to go into it, which would again would be considered like probably a bit rebellious in his day. And I'm like, probably because he fell for these sort of things or he fell into the trap of these things that are almost a little rebellious. That's why he's going to get so sensitive to rebellious things when he's the president. That's why he's going to punish, kill everyone in Hamish's life for using the force field as a weapon because he's going to see every single thing as a threat because he's seeing now how, like, falling for Lucy Gray made him less capital. It made him weak in the capital eyes. It made him weak. Yeah. And I'm, like, I'm noticing these things that are, like, humanizing for him that would actually be, like, redeeming qualities in a person. Like, him giving her a weapon is, like, kind of sweet. I mean, again, you know. The whole exercise is barbaric, but like he's trying to protect her. But like when he becomes president, if someone gave someone else a weapon, he would have them executed because it weakens him. So I just wanted to mention that, that like even the whole hand holding and the kissing, like the elevating of his tribute makes her more human, makes him less powerful over her. And that's why, you know, by the time the 70th and the 74th and 75th Hunger Games come around, he's like, every single thing is an act of rebellion. I should probably kill everyone. Yeah, and especially with him trying to elevate Lucy Gray, that's something he's constantly like emphasizing is that she's not really from District Twelve. Like she's part of the Covey, and they're they don't belong to any districts. Like they're practically from the capital. Like trying to separate her from the districts, just because again, the capital citizens think of the districts as subhuman, like literal animals, barbarians. So he's just trying to elevate her from that. But then we are in the arena at this point, and they really took it to a new level with the amount of evil because when the games start, we see that Marcus, who is the male tribute from District 2, which we haven't mentioned yet, but Sejanus, it's his, he's the mentor of the District 2, and this has been an issue for him because, like we said, he's from District 2, and Marcus actually was one of his classmates when he was really little before he moved to the capital. So, like, they don't know each other very well, but they know of each other. 
And so Marcus has obviously been super cold to him and just obviously hates him. And in the bombing, the the tributes from Districts 1 and 2 escape. Um, both District 1 tributes are, like, killed, and the girl from District 2 is killed, but Marcus is on the run. On Like, they haven't found him yet. And nobody knows what happened to him. But when the games start, they have him strung up, still alive, all bloody, just, like, hanging by his wrists. And, like we said, he's still alive, but just clearly been beaten and tortured. And I just, like, again... <laughs> I mean, I remember reading, like, when I read this book for the first time, just, you know, about a year ago now, I do remember being like, this book was very dark. And like I said, I think maybe I just didn't remember Hunger Games as well because I read it when I was much younger. So you didn't, it, it didn't feel the weight of things as much. But reading this, I feel like, especially since, like, the games right now are just so, like, savage, like, they're not civilized in any way. Whereas at least in the Hunger Games trilogy, like, they're like the killing doesn't start like things don't happen until they're in the games and like it's just different but this I remember like I just like this is something like I would never want to see this <laughs> like I would never want to see this in a movie like I don't need to see what this looks like like it's hard enough to try to imagine and I just don't know how I don't know how like they just like they would be able to justify this like it's a child I, I think, like, that's the biggest thing with, like, the Hunger Games and everything. Like, these are children. They're supposed to be the innocence, pure innocence of human beings, and we're stringing them up still alive. Literally, like, Jesus on the cross or something. Like, just ridiculous. But besides that, the games pretty much start out pretty boring because, like we said, it all the tributes pretty much just scatter and go hide in the stands because the bombing has kind of opened up the arena a little bit, so there's more places to hide. But after the first day, well, also because... So Janus's reaction to Marcus, he throws a chair at the screen, he freaks out and storms out of the room. They have, like, all the mentors... And I think, like, most of the Academy students are there to, like, watch. They have, like, in this big screening room. And so he, like, storms out, causes a huge scene. No one says anything. And nobody hears from him for the rest of the day. But once it's nighttime, everyone's gone home to, you know, get some rest before the mentors come back the next day. And when Coriolanus gets home, Sejanus's mother is at his apartment and is like, oh, where's my, like, son? Like, he hasn't come home. And Corey was like, oh, well, he must have went for a walk. Like, he was obviously very upset by, like, Marcus. Also because after he's been strung up, one of the tributes ends up, like, she climbs up to where he is and she kills him by hacking away at his throat, like, three times with an axe. Because I'm sure, like, they say that they have, like, a kind of a conversation, but they don't have audio, so they can't hear what they're saying. But obviously he's probably, like, please kill me like I am suffering. But there's obviously like, oh, I can't, you know, give you some night lock or, you know, just shoot you in the head. I have to, you know, savagely cut at your throat until I, you know, Ooh. sever your, what is that? Your carotid artery? Is that the right? <laughs> I don't know. Your aorta. Aorta. Sever your major arteries in your neck, basically slit your throat until you're dead. So again, never want to see this. But so, so Janus is very upset by this. And basically he ends up sneaking into the arena to try to do who knows what. 
um, basically, and this is obviously what spices everything up because Corio now has to go into the arena to retrieve him. Yeah, it's... God, it was so disgusting. You're so right. Like, it's so... It's so barbaric that they, like, had the boy... They had Marcus captured and they saved it. I mean, we didn't mention this, but, like, so when Arachne's tribute kills her and then Arachne has a big, big funeral, they, like, have Arachne's tribute, like, on like has to like get dragged behind the funeral procession and all the other tributes are in like a cage that's also in the funeral procession it's just like like it's very like um like really old timey like when you think of like very old in history like just the like no respect yeah like when i think of like even in warfare today like it's not like that. Like, we, like when we de- when you defeat people, like at least from what we see, like usually, like the idea is like there is a like a, a certain level of like civility to war. Yeah, this this is like the behavior of like terrorist groups. Exactly, like dragging like, not bodies, of, like, dead bodies, dragging live bodies. Now, like just things that it's like you don't see that in anymore. And to think, I mean, again, this is supposed to be in the past, and that's why another thing of. We don't see it in the Hunger Games with Katniss and Peeta. All the violence is hidden. It's on the down low. Like, Haymitch's family getting murdered, that's not broadcast to the whole country. He just comes back and his whole family is dead. Like, you know, it becomes a more, like, civil thing. Everything's done behind the scenes, which, like, doesn't make it better, but it's still just, like, there's a level of, like, okay, we're, like, not gonna broadcast this to everyone. Like, whereas this is just totally, like, just straight up, like, savagery. Like, it's just awful like what what kind of society is this yeah and like sejanus kind of gets away with everything and i was thinking about that as i was reading it i was like sejanus like acts up a lot like he's like he like yells at dr gall he's like this whole game thing is stupid and then he like throws the chair but i was like oh wait it's because he's rich like sejanus literally can get away with everything because he's bought his way into capital life and so you know because I'm like, I don't think that if anyone else threw a chair, they would be allowed to just, like, walk out. But, well, we're going to talk more about Sejanus, I'm sure, next week. I have more thoughts on that. But, so, like you said, so, Corio, he's, like, the only one who's, like, polite to Sejanus. And he had this because it was, like, a strategy to prove that he was, like, the most elitist of the capital. He's like, I'm not even going to be rude to this district boy. Like, I'm just going to, like be decent and ignore him. But because he's the only one who's like moderately polite to Zajanus, he gets forced into going to, into the arena to go get him out of it. Yes. So Coriolanus, like we said, he's pretty much Zajanus's only like closest thing he has to a friend. And so he's forced to go into the arena after him, basically to retrieve him. And I totally understand. I totally understand Coriolanus's frustration in this moment because he's obviously like, I'm not even like, I don't even want to be friends with this boy. This is just by circumstances. And you know, me just trying to be nice for once. And also because just what Janus did was stupid. Like what, what was he going to do besides get himself killed? Which when Coriolanus does get in there, that kind of seems like he didn't, he hadn't really thought it through. Like he was just like, they're just going to come and kill me and then it'll be over. And, but what I feel snow doesn't understand and even what you're talking about with sejanus like yes obviously what he's been doing has not been smart and he is acting a little like i wouldn't say like entitled but yes like 
I don't think that he's act, he's reckless. acting reckless, but I don't think it's because he thinks he's not going to face the consequences. I think he's just so like he doesn't know what to do with himself. He's a boy from the districts from district 2 and his father made all this money that they were able to buy their way into the capital. So therefore, one, his actual home, District 2, all the people from District 2 obviously hate them because now they don't have to participate in the games. Like, they are no longer part of District 2. But the capital people obviously aren't going to accept them because they're not true capital-born people. And it's also kind of like that idea of, like, old money versus new money. And, like, Snow, Snow's constantly, like, saying, like, if I had all the money, like, Sejanus had, like, his family had, like, I'd be set. But I was like, obviously, you would be because you were born in the capital. You have a respectable name. Whereas, like, the Plinths, like, they don't have a respectable name. They, they just bought their way into the capital. But I think, which will see more with Janus's character as the book goes on but it's kind of like he's just trying to do the right thing and snow even says like how he tries to like is going to manipulate him into getting out is like he needs to tell him like this is not the right thing which he does basically how he gets him out is basically you know if you die if they kill you they're not going to air this they're going to sweep it under the table and it's going to have been for nothing. He's like, you have money. You could, you know, maybe you could make change, which is like, there's no way he could do that. But still, like, which is smart for, it's smart for Snow to say that to him because he knows his way of thinking. But, yes, I mean, I don't know what Sejanus could possibly do besides, you know, just live his life and, like, be grateful for what happened to him. Finance And finance a rebellion. a rebellion in the future. But, like, and, but I think for him, I mean, he's a teenage boy. And he knows that what is happening is wrong, which every, like, instance, him yelling at Dr. Gall is basically just saying, like, this is wrong. Like, I don't know what's wrong with everybody. And I think also Sejanus' character really serves as that, like, voice of reason for the reader. Like, when they're talking about, oh, we're going to send food in and stuff, and we're going to do this. And he's like, why are we even having a Hunger Games? Why are we having children kill each other? And it's like, because you as the reader, I mean, unless... Unless we have some readers out there who are psychopaths or sociopaths, like crazy people. Most people reading the book are obviously like, this is wrong. Like, how can they not identify this is at, at any point being like morally wrong? So I think he kind of serves as that as well. But you'll definitely see his like development as a character as it goes on. Yeah. I wanted to mention one thing about being in the arena, which is actually a Corey and Elena's moment. Where he is talking about the traditions in the district. So what Sejanus is doing is that he's throwing breadcrumbs on Marcus's body. Because that's what you do in District 2 when someone dies. You throw the breadcrumbs on them so that they have bread going into the afterlife. And Coriolanus says this in the snarkiest way. He's like, these, you know, and he means it in a, wow, these... Districts are so uncivilized. Like, look at these weird pagan traditions they have. And these specific, I quoted it. He says, oh, he's starved to death. Go get the bread. Because, like, to, like, sprinkle the bread on them. And he's, like, he's actually making a pretty good point that, like, you would, you know, like, if someone, especially in a society where, like, these people are, like, are, you know, frequently dying of starvation. But at the same time, he's missing the larger point of, like, they don't need to starve. They wouldn't. They don't need to be in a society where they have to starve, period. And like that's the next leap that Coriolanus does not make. Like because he's so unwilling to see the districts except Lucy Gray as humans. He's like they're too stupid 
to eat the bread before they die. And it's like, no, you just assume that they're stupid. It's because they don't have any food. Which I have something for, I know I think you're going to talk about what Dr. Gall says. I have something in connection to what you just said. Yeah, let's go to Dr. Gall then. So afterwards, he comes out of the arena. He has a one-on-one with Dr. Gall. And it kind of seems like the whole plan of like him having to go in was a ploy to get Coriolanus to understand the violence. And so it's, we haven't talked about this, but it kind of seems like Dr. Gall sees potential in Coriolanus. She sees things she doesn't understand either. Like she doesn't really get like why he's close to his tribute, but like she gives him a lot of compliments and she can tell that he's smart and he understands the games and he understands what the games need to be like more effective in the capital eyes. And like, there's very clearly a relationship there where like she kind of sees him as, I mean, she's crazy. So we, you know, you can't trust crazy. She's completely unpredictable, but at the same time, like it's Coriolanus who gives all the good ideas that she's actually interested in and she implements. And we know that like, she's a game maker, which is pretty high in the capital and, he's going to be president one day. So they're like operating in similar circles. So it's just something to be like, so basically she put him into the arena because she wanted to see him to see like the worst instincts of humanity, because I think that she was worried that he was getting soft because he's like close to his tribute. And so she like interrogates him. She's like, how did you feel when the tributes attacked you? They didn't need to kill you. Like, they should have used that time to kill each other, but they killed, they came after you instead. And he's like, I underestimated how much they hate us. I wanted them dead. Every one of them dead. Like Dr. Gall was trying to like put him through the ringer to make sure that he is loyal to the Capitol, not to Lucy Gray, not to the tributes. Like he's primarily loyal to the Capitol and perpetual, the perpetual war. Okay. I have lots of thoughts. So I'll start with, sorry, I talked for a while. No, you didn't. You're fine. When first thing we have to mention though, so when they Corio and Janus, as they're escaping from the arena, they are attacked by the I believe it's the District Five male tribute. I can't remember. It's his a name. gang. I think it's Bobbin. Well, <coughs> Bobbin. Bobbin is the one that Coriolanus specific- kills. Yeah, and Coriolanus kills him. He beats him to death in self defense because With Bobbin came and attacked him, but. He beats him to death. Like, the next day they get to see Bobbin's little body all shriveled up, and he's just... And his mentor is like, what happened? And they're like, nobody knows. Yeah, so he brutally murders this little boy, and I understand the circumstances. And then the, like, gang of, like, three, like, bigger tributes chase them down until they're able to, like, escape through the barrier... And this is when, you know, Dr. Gall asks him about this and he says what Charles just said about how, you know, I I underestimated how much they hated us. I wanted them dead. Every one of them dead. But he also, because she also talks about, like, how did it feel like, you know, you killed that boy. And he's like, well, I wouldn't have had to, maybe I wouldn't have beaten anybody to death if you wouldn't have put us in this situation. But again, like what you said earlier about him not making the connection, he can feel that way for himself. But why doesn't he feel that way about the tributes? 
Because the only reason the tributes are savages killing each other, trying to kill you, is because you've put them in this situation. They have no reason to hate you, except for the fact that you starve them and treat them as unequal. Like, people are going to fight back against that. So I just think, yes, it's that interesting line. And I think with Dr. Gall, with her, like, tests and seeing potential in Coriolanus is the idea that, you know... Coriolanus is kind of walking that line of, you know, having compassion and completely throwing it out the window and becoming one of the capital robots that just kill people left and right. And Lucy Gray has been pulling out that compassion, that empathy in him and seeing... And Sejanus. And Sejanus and seeing the district people as real human beings. But then Dr. Gall, on the other hand, and just the Hunger Games in general and seeing his future in the Capitol as president and stuff is pushing him to that other side. And I think this moment where he ends up killing Bobbin, I think is the turning point for him where like he can't come back from it because something else that. And the tributes wanting to kill him. Like the and way the tributes think, wanting so. to kill him and how like, yeah, how like, and her, Dr. Galt presenting in that light of, you know, why didn't they take the time to kill each other? Well, because again, who's the real enemy in this situation? The capital. The capital's putting them in this situation. So why would they kill each other for your entertainment when we have a chance to Katniss. kill the person who's... Katniss, remember who the enemy, enemy is. Exactly. But something else I wanted to, another thought. <coughs> another thought is... With also like relating to Dr. Gall and everything, another assignment they had earlier on was to, they wanted the students to talk about their favorite parts of the war. Like what were the good things about the war? And, you know, people put like random stuff, you know, like, oh, people showing courage and blah, blah, blah. Like, but Coriolanus puts at the very end of his talking about like that feeling of control, that sense of security of them being on top of having defeated the enemy and Dr. Gall's like, you're on to something, like, that's the idea. And I think that just relates, like, to the whole Hunger Games because the Hunger Games is ultimately that they're trying to keep control over the districts, to set that fear in of the idea of we are above you and we always will be. And that's going to be something that I think for Coriolanus with Lucy Gray and, like you said, uh, Sejanus, like, he kind of has been walking that line of like, he's not sure because he's like, are the district people really that much below us? Like Lucy Gray is a person that I care about or I'm learning to care for. And she's from district 12. I can make out with her. Like even Sejanus is technically from the districts and like, he's not so terrible. Like obviously he wasn't fully raised there, but I'm just saying like, he's seeing this human side to them. But I think like this moment in the arena of being literally forced to kill somebody and feeling that security of like, you know, somebody's trying to hurt you. And then after having done that, the tribute's still attacking you. And instead of like how Dr. Golfrey is attacking each other, they go to attack you, the enemy, saying that sense of, I always want to be in control. I never want to not be in level of control. And having, being equal with somebody, you're not in control. You're on the same level as them. And it's the idea of I think he's going to realize that, like, he needs to be above other people to have that power, to hold power over them. So. Totally. I, I, I That's exactly what I felt. I was like, this moment, that conversation with Dr. Gall, like, she orchestrated that because, like you said, we saw the potential or we saw the, we saw the potential for being a cruel capital 
controller or a cruel or like a compassionate person. And Dr. Gall saw the potential for either of them and she orchestrated the situation and framed the situation. So this is definitely Corio's turning point. Especially because, like, again, we we know President Snow, how he turns out in the actual Hunger Games. He is an evil person, and we know how his life ends, but, which is something, like, I think for this prequel, why some people may not have enjoyed it, because it's, ob- it's, it's somewhat predictable, because we obviously know that he's not getting a happy ending. Well, maybe happy ending in the idea of he's going to become president, in the sense that that's what he wanted, I guess, but not in the happy ending of he's going to become a good person. We know that his ending is he's not a good person. Yeah, well, we knew that from the first page. I mean, he's literally like, I'm so rich, but people don't recognize it because I lost all my money, but, like, I'll be back on top one day. Like, that's literally his mindset. But there's a difference between being, like, entitled, like, rich boy and being, like, I have no value for human life besides my own. Yeah, I guess. But, like, you know. Just in the sense of, I think... I I, I mean, I knew he was going to be evil, like... Exactly. It's just that. But like, I think this why at least I enjoyed the prequel really, because I do think it's very good. And we'll see. We're going to read the second half, how you feel about it. But I think it shows a good development of what got him there, as well as just give like history on the Hunger Games and everything. Like, I think it's very well done prequel. It shows him on a journey because it's not like he's already like he definitely has no regard for human life, but it's not like he's. It. It's complex because he does have, you know, all the reasons we've discussed. Yes. I don't want to rehash everything we've already said for the umpteenth time. <laughs> yes. So then basically in our, the 16th chapter, the ending our section, the section of reading, we find out that Jessup has rabies, which like we said, that's the other, the male district 12 tribute, which him and Lucy Gray had like kind of obviously like formed an alliance. And so she was with him and we Lucy Gray is running away from him. He is chasing her. She's finally come out in the open. So far, she has not been spotted in the arena at all. And that's the end of the chapter. That's where it ends. So obviously, we're about to have an exciting moment once we start our next section. But that's it for today. So is there anything else that you wanted to say, Charles? Well, yeah, obviously, I want to keep reading. But two things really quickly I want to mention. Or three, I should say. Number one, Dr. Gall has this rabbit mutt that she has everywhere she goes. And she mentions it a bunch. And she's like, I have this rabbit mutt. And then she's always playing with it. And I'm like, the rabbit mutt is important. Like, I don't know what it's going to do. I don't know what, like, I don't know why. But, like, she has it everywhere she goes. Like, I'm like, we've got it. It's been mentioned, like, one too many times for it to not be important. So I'm interested to see how that develops. I'm interested to see what happens with Tigress. That's my second point. Because we know that Tigress obviously helps the Rebellion in Mockingjay. But we also know she was a stylist for the games at one point. But she fell out of favor. And we know that she's Corio's cousin. And they're really, really close. But they just fought over Lucy Gray's humanity the other day. So I'm interested to see if we see their falling out or if we see further deterioration. Like Because, you know, this book takes place... Uh, 64 years before, or 60, 65-ish years before Tigris turns on him during the rebellion. So mm-hmm. there could be any number of years in which she could, like, their their actual, like, severance could happen. But until then, like, we don't know. Like, I'm just basically saying, like, we might get the full split between him and Tigris. I don't know yet. But 
whatever happens, I do want to see how that relationship develops. And number three, I want to, I'm like, in the least sick and twisted way, I'm very excited for Sejanus's death because I know that Coriolanus is going to do something evil. Like, I'm, I don't know why I'm so convinced that Sejanus is going to die, but Coriolanus hates him. Or he hates everything Sejanus represents. He hates how Sejanus makes him feel guilty about being evil. He, like, he hates how Sejanus has a conscience. Like, he hates everything about Sejanus in, like, viscerally. And we don't have plinths in the later series. We have Heaven's Bees. We have a bunch of the names. We have cranes that, like, we have names that we, capital names that we meet in Katniss's time. Those are all, like, Mm -hmm. students at the Academy or, like, faculty at the Academy. But, like, we don't have plinths in, by Katniss's time. And, like, I know that if Coriolanus gets a chance, he's going to kill Sejanus. So I could be wrong. Maybe he's not going to have Sejanus done in. But right now I'm expecting Coriolanus to have a very special death reserved for Sejanus. And I'm interested to see how that goes. Okay, well, we'll be finding all that out next week, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Goodness. I promise it's not in a twisted way. I'm just like, I want to know. Also, because I like Sejanus. He's a sweetie. So I like, I want to know what his fate's going to be. Mm-hmm. So, aptly, next week we'll be reading the second half of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Gross. So if you do read along, just finish the book for the next week. And as always, if you have any predictions, theories, or questions, or you just want to keep talking to us about The Hunger Games, remember that you can stay in touch with us about anything on the Nerd Party website. Just head over to nerdparty.com contact and select throwback paperback. You can send us an email there and get in touch with the network on Twitter at joinnerdparty or on Instagram at thenerdparty and facebook.com slash thenerdparty. And to find me, I'm at asiabonia on Twitter and at asia.bonia on Instagram. And I'm at C. E. Sheeland on Twitter and at C. Shells on Instagram. And remember that as a podcast, if you rate and review us and share it with your friends, that's how the podcast grows. So check out the other awesome podcasts on the Nerd Party Network and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss us next week. Yes, hit that subscribe and have a good one. We'll see you next week. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.